Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Well, here we are in the middle of Federal Election 44, and as always, the biggest prize are Ontario's 121 seats. We'll get you updated on Fortress Ontario, plus the latest developments at Queen's Park, where apparently peace has broken out between the federal Liberal leader and the provincial Conservative Premier. It's Tuesday, August 24th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, good to be back with you after a few weeks off from the pod to recharge our batteries. We've both been writing columns, but uh, here we are talking to each other again, which warms my heart. How can you miss me if I won't really ever go away? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have a good comeback for that, but uh, it'll get us canceled, so I'm not going to do it. Well, there's a lot of developments to catch up on, starting with, if I can do a little Shakespearean takeoff here, To vaccinate or not to vaccinate? That is the question. Apparently, not all MPPs at Queen's Park were willing to take the jab, and that has had consequences for one of them. Tell us about it. Yes, uh, the PC caucus has lost yet another member. Uh, This time, Rick Nichols will be the one to join the independent benches. Uh, This is one of those times where journalism actually changed the course of events at Queen's Park. So I want to say uh, right at the top that Jack Howen at QP Briefing got this ball rolling by asking parties to comment on how many of their MPPs had been fully vaccinated. The NDP? Everyone. The Liberals? Everyone. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, you betcha. Uh, The Tories, well, that was complicated. Okay, so which MPPs are we talking about? Uh, Two progressive conservative MPPs were not fully vaccinated. Uh, Nichols, who represents Chatham-Kent-Lemington, and Christina Midas, who represents Scarborough Centre. Midas is pregnant and got a note from her doctor affirming her choice not to vaccinate right now. Um, I do want to uh, stress that many studies have shown that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe uh, for uh, people who are pregnant. Uh, On their website, the Ontario government actually recommends uh, pregnant women get vaccinated, uh, in their words, as soon as possible because uh, COVID can be particularly bad for pregnant women. Uh, That said, uh, the MPP for Scarborough Centre made her choice. I'm not here to judge her for it, uh, and she will remain as a uh, PC MPP. Nichols uh, has said uh, his reasoning was a point of uh, personal conscience, a personal decision. Uh, The Premier gave him until 5 p.m. on Thursday to change his mind. Uh, Nichols did not change his mind, so now he is a former PC MPP. For now, uh, interestingly, he retains the title of Deputy Speaker at the Legislature. Now, I'm sure you and I both watched his news conference last week at which he really looked like he was, I mean, he had a hard time getting through that. And, you know, Rick Nichols is, um, well, what do we say? He's in a very safe conservative riding. He's been there for 10 years. He's a 70-year-old guy. This is kind of a sad way to see his career in elective politics come to an end, if in fact that's what is about to happen. You say he, he retains his deputy speaker title for now. What does for now mean exactly? 
Well, uh, the deputy speaker, like the speaker himself, is uh, elected by all MPPs. So just because uh, the premier uh, in his position as PC party leader has expelled Nichols from the caucus, uh, that doesn't change uh, on its own. That doesn't change uh, Nichols' role as deputy speaker. That said, uh, both the NDP and liberals have already asked government house leader Paul Calandra for a vote to remove Nichols as deputy speaker and replace him. You know, the government could choose to leave him in the role. Uh, You know, we're less than a year from the next election. There's not, frankly, that much time left in the legislative calendar before then. But um, every time Nichols would sit in the speaker's chair, uh, you know, during uh, afternoon debates, that kind of thing, uh, it would be a reminder of (laughs) this guy who's no longer a conservative. I have no idea right now what the party will choose to do, though I kind of suspect they will uh, uh, engineer his exit from the role. Uh, And if they choose to do so, uh, it's just a vote of MPPs at the House. Uh, And given that the NDP and the Liberals have made it very clear how they want to see this proceed, it's um, not really a mystery how that vote would go. I should ask you, because I have not heard myself, has he indicated whether he's going to run for re-election as an independent? He's sitting as an independent now, but will he seek re-election as an independent? Uh, I honestly have not uh, heard yet from uh, Nichols about whether he will uh, run. As, as you said earlier, it is a very safe conservative riding. The one thing that would make it not safe would be uh, to have Nichols run as an independent or for him to join up with another party. I mean, you know, Belinda Carajalios and Jim Carajalios have the the, the true blue conservative party uh, that they are trying to uh, recruit members for the next uh, election. Um, I, I don't know if Nichols is, is thinking along those lines, but there is at least some prospect for Nichols to split the vote with conservatives if he is so inclined to do so and be a, a bit of a spoiler. Hmm. Okay. Well, let's, uh, while we're on the issue of vaccinations, point out that the last couple of weeks have been pretty good ones for the Ontario Liberals. They may only have seven seats at Queen's Park. Their leader may not have a seat at Queen's Park. They They may not be an officially constituted party at Queen's Park. But Stephen Del Duca has been out front on the mandatory vaccination issue. He was the first to call for mandatory vaccines for health and education workers. And the two other parties, John Michael, have basically followed suit. Yes, uh, with some uh, interruptions, I guess you could say. Uh, Andrew Horvath and the NDP had, um, uh, I think it's fair to say it was a a little bit of an embarrassing 180 uh, on this issue. Um, At first, when asked about uh, mandatory vaccinations for education workers, uh, Andrew Horvath had um, said, and you know, she was trying to take a, a shot at the liberal leader and, and, you know, it's fair in politics uh, and, and, and made a statement to the effect of, you know, Stephen Del Duca uh, not respecting uh, the charter rights of education workers. And of course, it's both a charter right to, you know, control your own body and also to um, have effective collective bargaining, something that is uh, near and dear to uh, NDP principles. Nevertheless, I would say that the reaction to Horvath's statement was... Um, infuriated a lot of people uh, especially a lot of people uh, in uh, Toronto's left I would say and uh, there seems to have been a bit of a caucus revolt and uh, 24 hours later uh, Horvath revised her statement um, you know apologized for a lack of clarity and 
you know, ever since then, uh, the NDP and the liberal positions are, are effectively the same. Uh, they want mandatory vaccinations for education workers, healthcare workers. Um, and uh, Horvath confirmed to me earlier today as we record this uh, that uh, she also wants to see students uh, uh, face mandatory vaccination. Of course, you know, there's already an existing law in Ontario for mandatory vaccinations for things like mumps and polio and pertussis and these kinds of things. People for Education, Annie Kidder's group, uh, has also called for uh, the COVID-19 vaccines to be added to the the mandatory list of vaccines for students in Ontario schools. And we should say, I guess at this point, I mean, kudos to Andrea Horvath for changing her mind on this thing. I think there's you know, the public are probably pretty tired of politicians who double down on stupid positions that no longer make sense. And so if she 24 hours later wants to make an apology and say, I got it wrong, I apologize, uh, you know, I'm changing my view to this. Okay, let's acknowledge that and give her kudos for that. Uh, We should also, I guess, say that um, he won't be doing it in public, I guess. But Doug Ford uh, has now taken that same position. I mean, he had the medical officer of health, Kieran Moore, unveil the new mandatory vaccination position of the governments. And while no premier, no ministers, they were not at that news conference to explain why the 180, uh, they have, in fact, done the 180. Yes. How come? Uh, well, the, the formal explanation for why there was no uh, elected representative at this press conference where uh, Dr. Kieran Moore made this announcement is that um, the announcement is, is entirely within the powers of the chief medical officer of health. He's the one making these directives, uh, you know, through his office. So he was the one to... Uh, you know, announce the policy changes and defend them when journalists uh, questioned him on them. Uh, but he did say that uh, he had uh, presented these options, these changes in policy to cabinet and had the unanimous support of cabinet. So I think it's also fair to say that this is kind of like a, a distinction without a difference. Uh, the the elected government clearly approved of these measures. And so um, it would have been nice to see an elected representative uh, defend them and, you know, answer questions. Uh, That said, you know, uh, this is a hard issue for the PCs politically. You have a party that uh, is still very sort of libertarian, uh, small government uh, sympathetic. The premier himself, uh, very sort of uh, uh, small government and, and, you know, never imagined that he would have to govern through multiple years of uh, what are still effectively, you know, emergency powers. Uh, so uh, they are fudging it. They are <laughs> they they are trying to hide it a little bit. I, w- I think you could say, um, you know, the problem for them is that, uh, and we see this repeatedly over and over in opinion polling. Uh, uh, polls show that uh, things like vaccine passports, vaccine mandates, uh, vaccine policies for high risk workplaces, uh, these are extremely popular. Have uh, majority support uh, even among most conservative parties around uh, the country. So you know the premier is in a pretty tight spot now, where a uh, a vocal minority is dragging him, uh, frankly, in opposition to a policy that has really broad popular support. Mm -hmm. Let's talk fundraising. We know in Ontario that the next provincial election will be June 2nd, 2022, 
And that means the parties are really quite desperate to raise as much money as they can right now, of course, to be able to buy advertising and rent planes and campaign offices and print lawn signs and all those other good things during election campaigns. But that desperation really crossed a line for the Ontario Conservatives this past week when they sent out fundraising appeals that actually weren't the typical solicitations for money. The appeals looked like invoices. In fact, it said invoice on it with a dollar figure attached. And it sure looked like if you got one of those letters that you owed the PC party money. Not, would you please help us stay in government, but rather, you owe us hundreds of dollars. That's what it looked like. Now, if <laughs> listeners want to see it for themselves, we'll throw up the link to it and show you some of the images in the show notes of this episode. But I guess my question is, who exactly JMM thought this was a good idea? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, not me and not you. <laughs> um, you know, that line, uh, I think I first heard it from uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, failure is an orphan, but success has a thousand fathers. Uh, as far as the PC party is concerned, uh, this fiasco is an orphan. Uh, nobody has publicly been named as the person who signed off on this fundraiser. Uh, as far as we know, nobody's been fired either. Uh, but while the mailer was uh, sent out by a third party uh, commissioned by the PC party and on the party's behalf, you know, it really, it strains credibility to believe that someone reasonably high up in the food chain didn't sign off on this at the time. Uh, maybe not the premier himself, but this is the kind of thing uh, that it, it doesn't go out the door unless at least one or two people in leadership roles uh, have seen it first. Uh, I mean, or at least we should hope so. Yes, agreed. Now, eventually the PC party apologized, sort of. Here is the statement that the party released. The Ontario PC Party tremendously values the support we receive from thousands of hardworking Ontarians every single year. Without your contributions, our operations would not be possible. At no time was it our intention to mislead our valued supporters. We regret that this correspondence was sent to a limited group of supporters by one of our vendors and will not happen again. We apologize for any confusion or frustration this may have caused. And yes, I may be more dramatically highlighting certain words in this apology than the party intended, but I mean, let's be honest here. There was no confusion here. This was a pretty clear attempt to bamboozle people into donating. Now, look, we know it costs money to run campaigns. This is not a good way of doing it. Is there a better way of doing it so that you don't feel like you need to take a shower after you've seen these kinds of solicitations? <laughs> I think every politician would admit that uh, fundraising is the part of the job they, they really hate the most because, uh, as you say, they so often feel like they need to shower afterwards. Um, you know, public financing, I think, can help in this situation, and we do some of that in Ontario. Um, in fact, the Ford government actually increased the per-vote subsidy for political parties uh, with their uh, election law earlier this year. Uh, one idea I like and would love to see tried here is um, democracy vouchers, which have been used in Seattle. Uh, basically, it's still tax dollars going to politicians, but uh, voters are given uh, vouchers that they can sign over to candidates in their area. Um, we don't have anything like that in Ontario. So for now, uh, it is still uh, private fundraising that parties really uh, rely on. And sometimes it uh, goes awry like here. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we've seen how the PC party handled this one. It does raise a few questions about how the other parties handle this as well. Andrea Horvath says she reviews everything that goes out under her own name. And Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, held a news conference, I guess, last week about this. And you and I both asked him uh, about how he does it. And he said he is regularly, quote unquote, briefed 
about liberal fundraising efforts, but that's not quite the same as greenlighting every solicitation attempt. I only raise this because, as you said, it's almost certain Doug Ford didn't sign off on this latest appalling fundraising attempt. He would have other people in charge of that kind of thing, I suspect. And the solicitation is not above his signature. Tony Miele, the chair of the PC fundraising efforts, signed this so-called invoice letter. Yes, that's that's true. And, uh, you know, the sad reality of politics today is that uh, leaders are responsible for absolutely everything, uh, which is why it is so important that they have uh, good, sensible people throughout their campaigns. Uh, so they don't have to spend their time defending uh, the indefensible, uh, but rather going on offense about whatever they want. You know, I, I remember uh, occasions where, um, you know, Kathleen Wynne would get grilled about a uh, a, a dumb tweet from the liberal campaign in 2018 and yeah it's just a tweet and yeah the <laughs> as she was the premier of ontario doesn't vet every single tweet that goes out uh under her party's banner but it's politics and she still has to take responsibility for it and uh, the same is uh, at least the same principle is true here I, uh, I will never forget Bob Ray coming into Queen's Park. This is almost 30 years ago when one of his backbenchers had, uh, I guess, said something stupid or done something stupid. And of course, he walks into the legislature and there's 20 microphones in his face almost instantly. <laughs> and I think either later that week or the following month or something, some bank president at a meeting he was at said, you know, can't you, can't you guys get your act together? And Premier Ray tried to give an example that the bank man, the bank president would understand. And the example was, can you imagine if every time the assistant manager of your branch in Sault Ste. Marie said something silly that you had 20 cameras in your face the next day in your office asking you to defend it? That's, <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of the way it is when the buck stops with you. And yes, we have to understand, I mean, responsibility is responsibility, uh, but they may not necessarily be to blame for every th single transgression that happens uh, in their name or, uh, you know, in their party. Uh, OK, let's talk about uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but we're actually in the middle of a federal election right now. Did you hear? Oh, geez. I, sorry. I, I got to go, man. I, I've got work to do. <laughs> well, hang on. Don't don't go just yet, because we still got to talk a little bit about federal politics. But we'll do it, you know, in the context of what's happening in the province of Ontario, because this is the On Poly podcast after all. None of the main party leaders, we should say, has spent much time in Ontario yet, with one notable exception, and I think this is unprecedented, which is why I want to talk to you about it. The leader of the Green Party, Annamie Paul, says she is going to spend the entire campaign in the riding that she is personally contesting, and that's Toronto Centre. There will be no national tour. She's not going coast to coast to coast. She is throwing all her chips into Toronto Centre. How come? Uh, we really haven't talked much about the federal Green Party and its very uh, dramatic few months uh, on the podcast because, well, we focus on provincial politics most of the time. Uh, suffice it to say, Annamie Paul has a pretty tenuous grasp on her party's leadership right now. Uh, there's been months of uh, backroom strife, I think you could fairly call it. Uh, and so she is in this position where she has to win her seat or um, she's gone, uh, relying on uh, other Greens to maintain the two seats the party uh, currently has is uh, sort of the, the rest of the national strategy, So uh, such as it is. Um, but the party is not doing great in the polls, and it is uh, really not clear uh, how much they will be able to salvage by Election Day. 
Well, we should say that she got some good news last week in as much as the members of this provincial council who were giving her so much grief, the ones who have been particularly difficult for her have apparently their terms have expired and they have left, or some of them anyway, and they have been replaced by people who are more sympathetic to her cause. So that's some good news for her. Deciding to run in Toronto Centre has always been seen as a high-risk gambit by Annamie Paul. I mean, it's definitely one of the safest Liberal seats in the entire country. But it's also a place she's run before, she's run in before, and she feels very connected to it. And we hasten to add the Ontario Green leader Mike Schreiner had to run several times before he won a seat. So let's just wait to see before anyone decides a month before Election Day uh, that this one is over. It's true. And of course, uh, Paul ran in the uh, by-election, gosh, was that last year? Um, And, uh, you know, she was not elected uh, an MP, but uh, did not do badly by any stretch. So uh, now she'll be running again. It is still a very safe liberal seat. And so she does have a, a tough mountain to climb, especially in a general election context where, uh, you know, it's it's the, the continuity of the liberal government that is uh, uh, at stake in this election. Uh, so we shall see. You're quite right. Um the other big difference, I would say, between uh, Mike Schreiner or even Elizabeth May and what is happening with Annamie Paul right now is that uh, those other Green Party leaders really had uh, the party four square behind them, even as they went through, I mean, in some cases, multiple election cycles without winning a seat. Um, as you say, uh, Paul has had some uh, good news in terms of her internal struggles with the party uh, recently. Uh, but it's not clear to me that she really has that level of support in the Green Party right now. So she really does need to win the seat in Toronto Centre, because if she doesn't, her leadership of the Greens will almost certainly be over. Does the expression, the quadra effect, mean anything to you, John Michael? I- I'm sorry to say it does not. <laughs> <laughs> You're too young, my friend. You're too young. That's why. Well, I want to take you back, you and our listeners, I want to take you back to 1984. Brian Mulroney was winning the biggest majority government uh, in Canadian history, 211 seats. The Liberals were getting devastated all across Canada. And yet in British Columbia, one lonely Liberal won a seat in Vancouver Quadra, and that was John Turner. And the reason that Mr. Turner was able to capture that seat, despite the fact that Liberals were going down in droves all over the rest of the country, is because the people in that riding in Vancouver Quadra uh, held a great deal of respect for him and the fact that he was a basically a central Canadian guy running out west to try to mount a resurgence in the Liberal Party out west. One wonders whether the same kind of thing could happen in this election for Annamie Paul. I mean, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that with Liberals doing reasonably well elsewhere in the province of Ontario, uh, that she could win that little patch in Toronto Centre uh, because people uh, just, you know, they respect what she's tried to do. So I know there's a... a There will be a rush to judgment right now that this is an incredibly safe liberal seat and she doesn't have a hope, and that may turn out to be true, but we don't have to decide that today with four more weeks of the campaign to go. That's the quadra effect. You can thank me later. (laughs) Well, I'm certainly always in favor of uh, more interesting outcomes instead of less interesting outcomes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's talk frenemies here. We well remember in 2019, it sure seemed as if Justin Trudeau was campaigning against Doug Ford. And the then conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, was doing his level best never to mention Doug Ford. In fact, I do remember Mr. Scheer doing an event in Doug Ford's riding. And as I recall, not only did he not invite the Ontario conservative leader to come, but he even refused to mention his name. 
Well, things have changed. What's the story now? There seems to be a bit of a, a non-aggression pact between uh, Premier Doug Ford and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, the Toronto Star has reported that uh, after that acrimonious year of 2019, uh, with the reasonably good relationship that uh, the Premier and the Prime Minister have had throughout the pandemic, they have basically decided to um, uh, let bygones be bygones. And... Uh, the the federal liberals are not going to go uh, hammer and tong against Doug Ford, and Doug Ford is not going to go hammer and tong against Justin Trudeau. And uh, we will see what happens on Election Day, uh, whether this um, uh, is, is mutually advantageous for the two of them. <laughs> now, I got a question this past week, and I have just the fella here who can answer it. We remember it was more than 20 years ago that the Mike Harris government decided to eliminate the provincial riding boundaries and assume the federal ones. So we went from 130 MPPs at Queen's Park to, I think, 99 at the time. And it was all, you know, a, a populist spasm about getting rid of politicians, etc., etc., which made for some great temporary headlines for Mr. Harris. But here we are now, all these years later, and we're practically at the same number again. But there are 124 Ontario seats today but only 121 federal Ontario seats. What's the explanation there? Uh, so that law that Mike Harris uh, or Mike Harris's government passed uh, was called the Fewer Politicians Act, and it uh, did what it said on the tin. <laughs> um, it, it got rid of uh, many elected politicians. And uh, when the Liberals won in 2003, they decided to keep the number of seats in Northern Ontario constant, uh, regardless of the changing population, as a way of you know, trying to maintain representation for Northern Ontario. Um, it's actually part of the same legislation that gave us uh, uh, fixed election dates in Ontario. Uh, so the federal government never adopted that rule. So uh, after uh, the, la the, the next census, uh, Northern Ontario actually lost a seat federally. Um, so you have, uh, in the north anyway, Ontario's election map is different than uh, provincially than it is federally. South of the French River, the maps are identical. So that's one extra seat to the total. Then in 2017, uh, the Wynne government added two more seats to the province's north to improve uh, representation for, for specific groups, uh, indigenous people and uh, other sort of uh, uh, substantial minorities uh, in northern Ontario. And, you know, we should say that by those lights, it worked. Uh, the new riding of Kiwetnung elected MPP Salma Makwa and the riding of Mishkegawak James Bay elected Guy Bourguin, uh, both New Democrats. But uh, that is uh, how we ended up with three more seats in northern Ontario provincially than we have federally. See, I knew you'd know. There we go. <laughs> okay, final piece of federal election trivia. All the major national party leaders have an Ontario connection. Where else will you hear this but on the On Poly podcast? Justin Trudeau was born in Ontario and, of course, has lived here as prime minister. Aaron O'Toole represents the Ontario riding of Durham. Jagmeet Singh was born in Scarborough, used to represent Brampton and uh, in the Ontario legislature. And we've already talked about the Green leader, Annamy Paul, who was born in Toronto, has lived in Toronto for many years and, of course, is seeking a seat in the province's smallest riding, which is Toronto Centre. All the leaders connected to the province of Ontario. What do you think of that? I mean, maybe if we try hard enough someday, even the leader of the Bloc Québécois will be from Ontario, and then our victory will be complete. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath on that one, but okay. Hope springs eternal. 
We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that immediately after we remind you that we love your feedback. If you want to talk to us on Twitter, I'm at S. Paikin. That's S-P-A-I-K-I-N. And I'm at J.M. underscore McGrath. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week, and I'm going back to Stephen Del Duca for this one and his hopes to get health and education frontline workers and teachers all vaccinated. I'm urging Doug Ford. We need him. Ontario families need him to show the same kind of urgency that he did for his own caucus members uh, for education workers as it relates to the mandatory vaccination. And and it goes from there. And so, again, I just want to urge Doug Ford, never the wrong time to do the right thing show the same kind of decisiveness as it relates to frontline education workers. Let's protect our kids, my kids, your kids, every kid across this province, in particular those who are vulnerable, those below the age of 12 who are not yet eligible to receive the vaccine. Let's get our schools reopened and most importantly, let's keep them open uh, so that our education system and our kids in the education system can properly recover. That's Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, on a Zoom call last week from his living room. And here's mine from NDP leader Andrew Horvath on Monday, uh, criticizing Premier Ford for his absence from the spotlight recently. Uh, I, I think uh, the thing that's really, really troubling for me, if I can, uh, as a kind of wrap up, is that where's Doug Ford while all this is going down? Doug Ford has been in hiding, uh, and that's uh, that's inexcusable. Uh, he's got to step up to the plate here. He's got to step up and show some leadership uh, and make the kinds of decisions uh, and changes that are necessary uh, to you know to to deal with this fourth wave, which we knew uh, for some time uh, was coming. That was NDP leader Andrew Horvath speaking with reporters on Monday. And that is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, we didn't talk COVID much today, but let me remind you of what my dad always reminds me. Stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>